Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Can you imagine Connecticut's marshes, shores, and wetlands without the graceful beauty of our long-legged wading birds, cautiously hunting the shallows for small fish and other aquatic life? That question was poetically posed by the Connecticut Audubon Society's Senior Director of Science and Conservation in the latest State of the Birds report. While local populations of wading birds like herons and egrets have rebounded since they were decimated by hunters at the turn of the last century, their status today is precarious. Today on Where We Live, we'll hear from several experts on the front lines of bird conservation, from wading and beach nesting birds to birds of prey. For so many species, human disturbance and land development are a continual threat. Plus, some good news. Raptors are back on the rise in Connecticut. Deep wildlife biologist Brian Hess will join us to discuss. First, to help us dig into the new State of the Birds report is Patrick Cummings, Executive Director of the Connecticut Audubon Society, and Mylan Bull, Senior Director of Science and Conservation for the Connecticut Audubon Society. Thanks, both of you, for joining us today. Thank you very much, Catherine. Amateur bird watchers, we want to hear from you too. What are you seeing where you live? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Patrick, I want to start the conversation with you um, in terms of the big picture. The report was titled 125 Years of Bird Conservation Through Local Action, celebrating 125 years of C- Connecticut Audubon Society and the impact of the conversation or conservation efforts it has led. Can you take us back um, to the society's origin story and the fact that it sounds like women's fashion was a huge part of that? Sure. Uh, this this was our uh, this report was uh, our I think sixteenth report. Um, it State of the Birds report. We began our State of the Birds report in two thousand six, and this year, coinciding with the. 125th anniversary of uh, the Connecticut Audubon Society. We wanted to look at broad issues that spanned the entire um, that entire period from 1898 to the present. And um, if we had a time machine and were to get back into uh, you know get into a time machine and go and and talk about bird conservation in 1898, certainly the topic of of fashion would be uh high on our list um I, it was oh sorry go, no sorry continue okay um bird conservation movement started the bird conservation movement started in the, in the 1880s and 1890s specifically as a way to stop the slaughter of birds by hunters in new york's fashion houses it was fashionable for birds and birds feathers to be to adorn ladies hats 
Well, I was going to say, um, I think it's really fascinating that that was sort of the crux of, of why it happened. And I can actually see uh, the fashion walking down the streets during that era. And Miley, uh, you head up conservation at the Audubon Society, and your portion of the latest report was focused more on wading birds like herons and egrets. At the turn of the last century, you wrote, there were more egrets adorning, adorning ladies' hats than in the wild. So echoing what Patrick was just saying, can you talk to us about that initial con- conservation effort and the far-sighted women who led it? Yeah, certainly. <clears throat> the, uh, at, at that time, the millinery trade was exceedingly active and it was very uh, profitable uh, to put bird feathers on ladies' hats. Anybody who's gone back in the history uh, of photographs, probably your your great grandmothers, <clears throat> excuse me, um, would have uh, shown ladies' hats adorned with uh, with feathers. And the the most popular of those feathers were the egrets, which were the long lace like uh, feathers uh, from the egrets' backs on the um, I- I- on the interscapular area of the birds, and. And uh, I, th- I believe that's what started the whole fashion movement towards putting birds on, on uh, bird feathers on, on ladies' hats. Well, they became so valuable and so popular in the fashion industry that um, bird hunters were especially uh, set out to collect these, uh, these, these egret feathers. And the, and the only time these egrets produce these specialized feathers is in the breeding season. And so the millinery trade would go into these very large colonies of nesting egrets and wipe them out. Uh, and so when they're killing the adults, uh, they also would kill the, the young ones because the young ones would starve once they shot the adults off the nest. No, no population of birds can take that kind of uh uh, situation for very long without becoming close to extinction. And basically that's what happened. So by the 1880s, 1890s, uh, these egrets uh, and other shorebirds, uh, wading birds, became uh, nearly extinct. Where, whereas they were found at one time, uh, you know, from the south all the way up to uh, Maine, uh, by the time 1888 or so came came to pass. They were very, very rare in Connecticut. And, uh, and fortunately now, um, with the passage of the uh, Migratory Bird Treaty Act, uh, they've slowly began to recover. Um, but yeah, that's true. At one time, there were, there were more egrets on people's hats than there were in the wild. And I think I think it's difficult to imagine, especially today, that that's sort of what started this whole thing. And the fact that fashion has such a large impact. And I, I'm trying to picture there must be a huge need. I mean, there's that's a lot of feathers, basically. Uh, where do things stand today for wading birds? I understand that I think uh, 846 was the peak of the state's population. Yeah, well, today the uh, the wading bird population nesting in in the state is is teetering. You know, it's it's trying to recover. But interestingly, these wading birds nest in colonies, which means they nest together in a group, and they need protection from predators. So they've, over time, they've, uh, they've evolved to reproduce on offshore islands, undeveloped offshore islands, 
that uh, are the most protected from predators. And since, as you can imagine, there's not too many undeveloped offshore, offshore islands left in Connecticut, but there are a few. And so we do have uh, about five islands off the coast of Connecticut that support about five species of uh, wading birds that are, that, that are nesting there. But uh, they're under threat, you know, they're under threat by human disturbance, uh, still by uh, predators, you know, raccoons can still swim out to these islands. Uh, white-tailed deer can get out to the islands and uh, reduce the um, uh, the nesting cover, the habitat that these birds need to nest in. So, yeah, they are they are uh, very well protected, but uh, uh, under threat. And I think Duck Island in Westbrook is one of the sanctuary for these birds. Can you talk to us in a little bit more detail about what that looks like? Yeah, sure. Duck Island off Westbrook is a um, is one of the sounds sort of rare undeveloped islands. It's about uh, 5.5 acres and it's a state owned wildlife management area, which means the state of Connecticut, the DEEP uh, protects that island. Um, it's got these two long breakwaters extending north and west. And it's actually listed by the Audubon Society as an important bird area. And right now it's one of the largest heronries in the Eastern half of the sound about there's probably about 55 pairs of uh, five different species of wading birds that are nesting here. Um, basically in the structure, it's got a very dense structure of uh, vegetation, which they need uh, for protection. So yeah, so Duck Island is, is one of our, uh, one of our great success stories for uh, wading bird nesting. And you mentioned that there, you know, raccoons and white-tailed deer are destroying um, a lot of the breeding habit habitats. And I think some of the habitat restoration is also ongoing at Charles Island in Milford, um, which has seen a, a, a decreasing numbers of egrets because of the reasons you've you've said just now. Can you tell us more about that effort in particular? Yeah, well, Charles Charles Island is a little a little different than some. It's it's. Um, it's undeveloped, but there's a long tomboa, a sandbar that goes out to the island at low tide. So people uh, can get out there. Uh, white-tailed deer can walk out. Raccoons can get out. But uh, some of the recent storms we've had out there have uh, decimated the structure that these birds need to nest in, which is the um, the, the trees and shrubs that uh, these, these bird colonies need. And so the state has been doing a, a really good job of uh, trying to restore this island um, into uh, uh, a good uh, heronry again. They're protecting it, they fenced it from deer, they're keeping people off of it, and they're replanting um, the structure that these birds need to nest in. So we'll see. Um, right now there's a few birds nesting there, but we're, we're pretty much uh, optimistic that this can become a very um, active uh, heronry again. I'm glad for that optimism on this Monday morning, talking about a very interesting topic here. Um, you mentioned that uh, it's, it is rare to find undeveloped islands for these birds to nest. And so can you give listeners a sense of how central an issue human disturbance and land development are when it comes to wading birds? Where do they, ha where do they usually nest? Yeah, well, it's probably uh, the most uh, important um, situation that these wading birds nest in is it's uh it's human disturbance <clears throat> we have a we have a ways to control the uh the predators you know we can um uh move the raccoons and the deer off the islands 
but there's there's a there's a huge number of uh, boating recreationalists that are up and down the coast, and of course they like to land on the beach, you know, and have their picnics to walk through the the, the forests or the the habitat if there's uh, no one living there, and they bring their dogs, and all this has a has a big effect on the um, on the wading birds. They need to be uh, away from people, away from predators away from dogs and they need um, heavy structure in order to nest in. So probably the human disturbance is one of the primary uh, issues that we're facing. But that's something that that we can, um, if collectively, that's something that we can all work on as well. You know, we, we like to put up uh, warning signs, you know, this is a bird nesting area, please keep out. Um, if it's a state owned property or, or, or private owned property, we can fence it from from people. So, I mean, we can do this. This is not, uh, this is not impossible. So I think that the, um, the, as I said, the overall situation is, is optimistic if we keep working on it. And Patrick, I want to bring you back to this real quick. You know, what else would you add to the front of human disturbance? Well, these areas aren't exactly places that are pleasant to go to. They're interesting, but, um, you know, there, there are all sorts of poison ivy. There's all um, ticks galore out there, um, including the the, uh, the Lone Star tick. So really from a human health and, 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 and safety um, perspective, it's, it's, it's best to avoid these areas as well. And the ticks can carry diseases that can affect our dogs as well. So, um, uh, um, although it may be interesting and novel to go out and you know think, oh, I'm going to go visit the heron rookery, or I'm going to I'm going to go look for uh, Captain Kidd's treasure. Um, going out to these islands is not um, not exactly uh, not exactly pleasant or safe. Well, you have me at treasure real quick, but then uh, ticks galore is also going to help me not want to go to those areas and leave those birds in peace. Um, can can you also just uh, um, do you have anything more specific as well in terms of what we what humans do to disturb those properties in terms of land development or like what um, Miley was saying earlier? You know, people like to go picnic or or land their their boats there. Anything else that you can think of? Yeah, I mean, I think it's. Um you know, it's a matter of these these birds in some parts of the world will nest on the mainland where the habitat's right for them, like in the Everglades where there's these uh, um, sort of forests that are hammocks that are that are um, above the marsh. So in a sense, marsh islands. And um, but we're so highly developed up here in the Northeast that in a sense, these birds have been pushed to the undeveloped islands, and um, it's um, with you know what few islands are remaining. Even if there aren't island birds nesting there currently at this time, um, they offer the potential of of future nesting colonies. These colonies tend to be ephemeral in general just by their nature because they're so susceptible to to predation and disturbance. So um, 
in a natural or perfect situation, there would be, say, 10 islands and five of them which would be inhabited at any given time. And as deer or um, raccoons or humans were, would disturb an island, they'd move to a new island. Unfortunately, we have only a finite number of islands here in Long Island Sound, and even a lower number of which have the proper vegetative structure. So we have to, in a sense, protect them a little bit more than we would uh, in, uh, under a perfect situation if, 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 if the human disturbance was not an issue, if, if uh, the deer... Um, browsing hadn't uh, already altered the the uh, vegetative structure on these islands if if all of the um, mainland nesting uh, sites hadn't already been encroached upon by development well speaking of a perfect moment Sharon on Facebook just shared with us that she was crossing she was a crossing guard in Rocking Hill and one morning about two weeks ago she was crossing kids at Griswold Middle School and saw the most majestic bald eagle soaring right over us. Thank you so much, Sharon, for sharing that. And I want to turn it back to Miley. You're also the dean of Connecticut conservationists. What are your concerns in terms of the big picture? Uh, I'm also the what? The the dean of the Connecticut conservationists. Oh, wow. <laughs> I've just been elevated beyond my status. <laughs> the dean of, of conservation. Whoa. Uh, Patrick, I hope that results in a pay raise somewhere down the line, but uh, never mind. We'll talk about that later. But um, uh, what was the, I got so uh, interested in being the dean, I forgot what your question was. Well, uh, apologies if that was an inadvertent uh, promotion, but really just want to get your perspective on what are some of your concerns in terms of the big picture? Well, the big picture, you know, the, uh, Populations of birds um, and other animals, but specifically birds, they ebb and flow. Um, it's, uh, you know, both in species and diversity. And, but gradually the ups and downs are heading downward. And that's obviously because of the, the human population is increasing. People need places to live, need places to work and need places to shop. And so development is uh, increasingly uh, fragmenting uh, habitat for all bird species, not just in Connecticut and the U.S., but around the world. And so what's happening is there's fewer and fewer places, uh, large wild landscapes for bird populations to thrive. And uh, this results in um, these small fragmented areas. I mean, it, it, a lot of people have been watching the Yellowstone series, but if you take Yellowstone National Park, for instance, in reality, that's just a a tiny little dot in the uh, uh, on the earth for 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 habitat, and as as these habitats shrink and become tighter, smaller and smaller islands, um, naturally you're going to get uh, diversity and abundance of birds and other species uh, to decline, and so that's the biggest threat that we're facing. Is uh, you know we can protect national parks, state parks, wildlife areas, Audubon sanctuaries. But in the large landscape scale of things, um, it doesn't really have a, uh, a big impact on the overall um, diversity and abundance of birds. 
Well, thanks so much for that, um, Miley. Does that from, make any sense? Yes, it did. It did, absolutely. Okay. And I, no, we appreciate that perspective. And from Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. We just heard about the conservation efforts to offset the fading of wading birds in Connecticut. Coming up next, we'll get a little closer to the shore and hear about beach nesting birds from Audubon, Connecticut. What have you observed where you live? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. American oyster catchers, like many beach nesting birds where we live, are threatened by climate change and habitat loss. Whether the piping plover, the least or common tern, the willet or semi-palmated sandpiper, all require continual vigilance to maintain and increase their populations. Researchers estimate that the population of North American shorebirds have declined 73% since 1970s because of habitat loss and unregulated hunting in their Central and South American wintering grounds. That's according to Elizabeth Amandola, Coastal Program Coordinator for Audubon, Connecticut. She joins us now. Thanks so much, Elizabeth, for joining us. Hi, good morning. Thank you. And still with us is Patrick Cummins, Executive Director of the Connecticut Audubon Society. Bird watchers, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, Beth, can you talk to us about the status of conservation efforts for Connecticut's beast nesting birds, and why are they particularly vulnerable? Yeah, so our beach nesting birds are, are very vulnerable. As you know, um, Connecticut's coastline, we don't have many available beaches for these birds to nest on, and we share them with lots of beachgoers that like to enjoy the shore as well. Uh, these birds lay their eggs directly in the sand, and their tan and gray eggs with you know black and brown speckles will blend right in, and they're very difficult to see and very easy to be stepped on. So here in Connecticut, we try to um, protect these areas. Uh, we put up fencing just to uh, alert folks that, you know, we do have birds nesting here, um, you know, and just try and give them a little space so that they can they can breed here in the summer. 
It's so fascinating to be having this conversation just because I'm familiar with the snowy plovers in the California coastline where we were, as humans, fenced out and not allowed to go to the beach in the summers. But it is important to to stay off their habitats. So can you help us distinguish the threats of human intervention in terms of, you know, whether it's disturbances or just outright land development and climate change? Well, actually, all three of those, um, you know, topics are, you know, have a big impact on these birds' populations. So yes, human disturbance, even just, you know, general beach going, folks walking down the beach, this will, you know, scare the birds off their nests. Um, you know, coastal development is reducing the amount of available nesting habitat for these birds. Um, and climate change is also having a, a very large impact. Um, we're seeing the increase of severe coastal storms. And what this does is it will wash over these beaches and it will wash out these nests. Um, and in some cases, even take very young chicks. So they're very susceptible to all these threats. Is there one in particular that has more threats than others? Well, I think um, human disturbance really has a, a huge impact on these birds, but I think um, that threat is something that we really can work to try and reduce. Um, you know, keep your dogs off the beaches. Um, when these birds see our, you know, our sweet little pets that are a member of the family, they they see it as a predator. They see it as a fox or a coyote coming to eat their chicks or their eggs. So it really has a um, detrimental impact on these birds. Um, and, you know, just giving birds space. Th these are things we can do. Um, removing your garbage from the beach. Um, garbage that we leave on the beach will attract predators like raccoons and gulls that also will feed on chicks and eggs. Uh, so there there are simple steps that we can do to give these birds space to to ensure that they can nest successfully. And what are the uh, what are the other shorebirds we are referring to when we say beach nesting birds? We're talking you know piping plovers, American oyster catchers, and terns, as well as invasive species. Uh, well, here in Connecticut, we do all those species you just mentioned. So our oyster catchers, our piping plovers, um, we have least terns and common terns. Um, the common terns tend to nest on our offshore islands with many of our oyster catchers. And on our mainland beaches, we see our piping plovers, our least terns, and um, our American oyster catchers. Um, these areas, uh, those are nesting species, but these areas are also very important for our migratory shorebird species. Um, they come here in the spring and fall uh, during their migration, and they really share these areas with our beach nesting birds um, to rest and feed. You know, it's a little stopover for them on their long journeys. I was actually going to ask if you can explain how important are the migratory patterns and the work that you do to identify these sort of key staging areas and the stopovers that you just mentioned? So yeah, these, you know, as I, as I said, these areas are very important. Uh, we'll have flocks of, you know, at times thousands of birds in, you know, a few select areas in Connecticut where these birds can rest and feed. Um, you know, here in Connecticut, we've actually started um, putting colored bands on American oyster catchers. Um, these bands are easy to see. You can see them with binoculars or a camera and you can read the code. Um, what these bands are doing is they're helping us to understand these birds' movements. Um, so during the season, we can see which birds come back, where they're nesting. Um, and then at the end of the season, they move to these areas we call staging areas, where the birds will group up together in a large group. They'll hang out and feed for a couple months, you know, building energy reserves before they migrate, mig excuse me, migrate south. Um, and when these birds end up in their wintering grounds, um, People are also seeing their their colored bands on their legs. And by reporting those, 
we're getting a better understanding of where these birds are going and the other areas that need to be protected. It's not just their their nesting areas and their stopovers. We also need to look along, you know, through the Americas and Central America, um, the areas these birds are using in the winter as well. And you've also looked at the correlations between urbanization and invasive species like starlings, but you found that the attributing cause and effect is complex. Can you break that down for us? So the case of, you know, invasive species, you you see, you know, they're outcompeting our native species. Um, and, you know, some birds do better adapting to an urban environment. Um, they can adapt, um, which I'd say also in Connecticut, our birds um, have done very well adapting being in close proximity with, with humans. Um, you know, and you, you see this birds that are more species that are more successful at dealing in urban environments will outcompete our native species. Um, but it fluctuates greatly. And, and we had one, one, one of our articles was, was based on uh, the invasive uh, European starling. It was by Dr. Julia Zicolo uh, from Hunter College. And um, what we found is that even some of our invasive species, such as the European starling, are declining uh, at quite a, a um, st uh, stiff rate, and that uh, that a lot of the, the problems we thought were easily easily blamed on the invasive species weren't necessarily, um, you know weren't necessarily caused by the invasive species, but by other factors, including some human, you know, induced factors. So I want to come back to the migratory patterns real quick again is, uh, do you factor or how do you factor other countries and overwintering risks? Uh, well, you know, it, it really begins, you know, with identifying these areas that the, the birds use and are going to in the winter. And it's, it's really creating partnerships. Um, you know, creating partnerships with with other NGOs and organizations that are doing work in these countries, um, you know, learning from each other, helping each other, um, you know, and it's it's building on this. So, you know, it, it's one thing to have very good protections and and management plans in a in a breeding area, but that also needs to extend to their wintering areas where we can we can help and learn from each other um, and you know ensure that these wintering grounds where these birds um, heavily rely on to feed and rest in the winter. Um, can also see the same protections. And from your perspective, and from the conversations we've been having, it seems like there's they're all connected, really. And what can listeners do to not just avoid the areas where these birds are nesting, but even help these environments? You know, there's there's many things, folks. You know, when, the, when there's legislations passed, um, you know, here in Connecticut, uh, our beach nesting birds re rely on the health of Long Island Sound. Um, so they need, you know, healthy waters that will produce fish that the terns feed on, um, you know, oyster catchers with their namesake. They're eating oysters and mussels and clams. Um, you know, we need to ensure that, you know, we, we maintain the health of the sound. So, you know, folks can even, you know, help um, voting with uh, specific legislation that will, you know, provide protections uh, for their food sources, um, you know, support open space, um, you know, with, um, you know, also giving share the shore with these birds, give them some space during the breeding season, um, you know, and that will ensure some protections for them here. 
Um, and then it's working with our partners, you know, ed education, um, you know, in some of the wintering grounds, uh, there are groups that are working on to um, strengthen hunting regulations of these birds, um, you know, and that that will also help protect them. And, and also coastal development in these other developing countries, um, you know, making sure it's done in a sustainable fashion where we can also protect the habitat these birds need to feed and rest. I was going to say you mentioned legislation, and there's been a couple, a handful of acts I think that was passed over the over the years. Are there any policy priorities from where you're standing that you think should move forward? Uh, well, if you know, recently the Restoring America's um, Act, you know, if, if we get that passed, that is that is going to be huge for um, conservation. Um, that will increase the amount of money that the state will see that we can use to put toward our conservation efforts. And that would be a huge, huge leap and a huge win for for these birds here in Connecticut. And Patrick, I just want to bring this back to you too. You know, what can listeners do to help protect environments uh, besides just avoiding the nesting areas? Yeah, as Elizabeth mentioned, Recovering, Recovering America's Wildlife Act is really huge. And uh, already, um, you know, our, our members and um, people who, who are advocates for wildlife have reached out in droves to our elected officials and it has passed the house and now is just waiting to hopefully pass the senate before the end of this session um and uh, um keep an eye out for uh, you know on our websites uh the various you know audubon connecticut and connecticut audubon society's websites for for uh, opportunities to weigh in an additional um on additional policy frameworks. Uh, there may be some additional uh, legislation regarding horseshoe crabs. This um, this uh, legislative session, horseshoe crabs are very important prey items. Their eggs are eggs and young are very important prey items for migratory and nesting shorebirds and and other species of uh, conservation concerns such as weak fish and and um, um, uh, uh, bluefish. Um, and I was going to say for both for both of you, really, um, if listeners want to help out and volunteer, do you have uh, opportunities for them to join in on that? Yeah, if they go to our website, um, the Audubon Alliance for Coastal Water, or the AAFCW.org, or just, you know, Aud Google Audubon Alliance for Coastal Water, or they can find out more about, about uh, um, volunteering to help out with shorebirds either on a regular basis being a if you if you will a monitor or a steward or um on special occasions when we may be putting out string fencing or removing the string fencing that sounds like a plan thank you so much for for that information and from connecticut public radio this is where we live i'm Catherine shen you've been listening to elizabeth amandola coastal program coordinator for audubon connecticut thank you so much for being here with us today Coming up next, we'll be talking about how raptors are on the rise in Connecticut. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Raptors are back on the rise in Connecticut. Here to discuss the bright spot in the Connecticut Audubon Society's State of the Birds report is Brian Hess, Wildlife Division Biologist with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Thanks, Brian, for uh, being here with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. And still with us is Patrick Cummins, Executive Director of the Connecticut Audubon Society. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, so, Brian, we've been talking about habitat loss and bird habitats and how humans should not be going to these places, but there is a major bright spot in this year's State of the Birds report from the Audubon Society. What species are we referring to here when we're describing raptors and this success story? Absolutely. So I uh, wrote an article for the Birds report about uh, peregrine falcons, ospreys, and bald eagles, and they're the the threats, the decline that they went through during the middle of the 20th century, largely in part due to uh, DD, the overuse of DDT um, and some secondary imp- impacts from that. Um, and then also just the um, the recovery, the dramatic recovery that that, that those species have made. Uh, after DDT, there were no bald eagle nests in Connecticut until the year 1992. There was, that was the first year. Uh, and then this year, we've got uh, somewhere in the ne- neighborhood of 80 nesting territories across the state. Speaking of dramatic, that that sounds quite dramatic. And can you explain just a little bit more about why the pesticide regulation is a very crucial part of the rapid recovery story? Sure. Um, I, I think that this is a an important story to uh, to include in a report like this because it really demonstrates similar to how the um, connecting it to what you were talking about at the beginning of the hour, where you were talking about how the, um, uh, the Connecticut Audubon Society was formed to address the conservation challenge of overharvest for the millinery trade. Um, it shows, it demonstrates the ability of people, uh, of uh, policy and uh, conservation action to align to address a, a, a concrete threat and allow a species to recover. So. Um, in uh, the DDT was a widely used uh, insecticide, um, and it, it it basically became a part of uh, the uh, ecosystem all across the state. Um, Connecticut uh, Agricultural Experiment Station had done some some experiments in the sixties and seventies and found it in you know uh, places where that had been sprayed, and and it had worked its way into the food web of places that had not been sprayed. Uh, the animals that we're talking about, ospreys, uh, peregrine falcons, and bald eagles, those are uh, at the top of the food chain. So they're predators that are eating predators that are eating predators that are eating, you know, um, insects and birds and things like that. Uh, So that uh, toxin accumulates and the effects of it is biomagnified as it goes up those different food chain levels. Um, And it really inhibited their ability to successfully reproduce to the point where um, in, in the, in the mid sixties, there were, you know, under 500 nests, of bald eagles in the lower 48 States. Uh, and when they were delisted, um, 15 years ago, there was, there was over 10,000. So, um, you're really seeing a dramatic depression as a result of that chemical interaction. Um, and then, um, you're seeing as a result of conservation action and, and policy, the, the ability for some species that are uh, well adapted to really recover in a dramatic way. 
And you wrote an article, a recent history has taught us that these raptors are key indicators of waterway health, po- uh, pollution, and deeper environmental issues. Can you explain how raptors are only just one part of the biodiversity crisis? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that one of the things that we try to do, one of the reasons that we keep our fingers on the pulse of these species, why we keep uh, paying attention to them, is that they are um, they are indicators. They're indicators of of uh, of healthy water, of, of clean environments. And I think that at the end of the day, that's kind of a lot of what we're interested in is, you know, I'm, I'm certainly interested in healthy bald eagle populations or osprey populations. Um, but beyond that, I'm, I'm really interested in having uh, healthy, diverse forests, um, resilient, you know, um, uh, resilient uh, habitats that are able to withstand uh, some of the challenges that climate change will throw at it. And, and clean waters. And I think that when you have species that are capable, uh, that are susceptible to some of these, um, some of these toxins, uh, some of these uh, contaminants, uh, it's important to, to, to keep your, uh, to keep an eye on them. And you told the current that birds can be a bellwether on what they're, on how we're doing as a whole. Can you elaborate that a little bit? I know we kind of talked about it. they're all very much connected in terms of biodiversity, but as a whole, can you break that down for us? Sure. Um, birds are, are kind of a great bellwether be, uh, for several reasons. I mean, if you look at all of the bird species, they're, uh, they have evolved to inhabit every little niche um, and and ecological crevice that are out there. So they're really spread spread widely across the landscape. Um, and then secondly, you have them moving around. So they're taking um, they're basically collecting uh, food. Um, they're hab- they're using a habitat at, at a, a scale that is really meaningful to us when we're trying to um, uh, to manage property or to to uh, maintain healthy wildlife populations. So it's um it's an important thing to be able to uh, to keep your your fingers on on that um on that pulse right there. Uh, birds are are um, when birds are doing well. I think that that's an indication that the the uh, the species below them on the food web are doing well as well. Um, and when there's uh, when they're in trouble, I think that that's definitely a cause to pay attention to you know to really sit back analyze what the threats are um, and and how we can take collective action to um, you know to make things better for birds because ultimately when we make things better for birds we make a more healthy environment for ourselves just based on this conversation I'm thinking I need to get some sort of bird barometer to hang in my yard and you've also mentioned that the birds are fine it's about giving them the space they need are you talking about ultimately needing to minimize human disturbance and land development like what are you saying here uh, yes, no. So for um, I'm, I'm speaking about the species like bald eagles, ospreys, and peregrine falcons. They're a very adaptable bird species. They're able to um, once once that sort of limiting factor that was inhibiting their reproduction was solved. Uh, there's they've shown us that they're uh, able to tolerate some level of disturbance, and in fact. You know things like uh, peregrine falcons and ospreys have really uh, taken to some of the structures that we've built as nesting habitat. So we've created this network of cell phone towers across the network uh, across the um, uh, across the state for you know for the purposes of us staying connected. But when what we've actually done is we've 
created, uh, you know, hundreds and thousands of potential nesting spots for ospreys. Um, you know, we have these uh, large bridges that pass over the um, uh, the mouths of the rivers uh, along the Connecticut coast. Um, and we didn't intend them to do this, but they have proven to be uh, really excellent habitat, nesting habitat for peregrine falcons. Um, you know, we have some areas where we leave, um, we have open space, but with big trees uh, near, near rivers and lakes. And while we like that, bald eagles also have moved into those spaces. So um, the, those species have proved to be adaptable. Now, there, are, I, I want to specify that there are some species out there that are specialists. They require special food or special habitat um, and or uh, something like uh, like the shorebirds that we were talking about earlier, where they're, um, you know, they have a really thin area, a real small area of that state that is acceptable nesting habitat for them. Um, and they're in direct competition with what we want to do. So there are absolutely places where we need to, um, uh, to to manage that. However, you know, I think my point was, if you a lot of times, if you're able to sort of give the birds a little bit of space, um, understand what they need, they're going to do their thing and do it well. And we just need to kind of um, to stand back and and really a lot of what uh, I do as a wildlife biologist is is managing people, managing our expectations, uh, providing technical assistance, and figuring out how to live alongside the wildlife in Connecticut. Well, you just re- reminded me that I think driving down the freeway, I I see uh, birds and eagles nesting on billboards and and highway lights. They're talking about adaptability. Um, and from where you're standing, you know, we talked about protection and what people can do. Um, but what can people do to help protect um, ospreys and and bald eagles in terms of their habitats? Absolutely, I I think so. Um, a couple of the things that we do is uh, I would suggest that if you see um, if you see bald eagles carrying sticks, that's usually a sign that there's a nest nearby. I, I would appreciate if you let me know about that. That would be wonderful. Uh, secondly, I think if you um, uh, if you're interested in in in, in monitoring um, these these species, you know, reach out to uh, myself or Connecticut Audubon Society. There there are programs out there, volunteer programs that 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 can help. Um, keep tabs on things. Uh, third, I think, and I think this is kind of the key one, is to to give animals their space. Um, my rule of thumb is that if uh, some if an animal, if you're watching an animal, if you're watching wildlife, uh, and it changes its behavior because you're there, that probably means that you're too close. Um, so you know, giving some space is uh, a really a really key part of of that equation. Um, and then I think fourth is to kind of enjoy the fact that they're there. Um, there are opportunities to go out during the winter uh, and see um, uh, see bald eagles along the Connecticut River. Uh, there's a, the Chapag, I, uh, we, we work with uh, folks at the Chapag Dam. They have a eagle viewing spot there where you can go and see eagles that are fishing the, uh, uh, the water coming out from below the hydroelectric plant right there. So, you know, there are opportunities. Get out there and get engaged and, and, and see and actually see these animals. Um, and uh, and I think like beyond that, understanding that it's really important to understand that these are species that were on the brink um, in uh, in the lower 48 in the continental U.S. Um, and collectively, we decided that as a society, we wanted to make a change. We made policy changes about what chemicals we could use. We made uh, 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 investments in um 
you know, uh, protecting and reintroducing birds to areas from which they, from where they had been extirpated. Um, so I think we're, you know, um, understanding that change is possible, recovery is possible, and, and uh, but it does take a, it does take a, a, a lot of effort and a lot of resources. Um, so I, I really think like things like recovering America's Wildlife Act, which uh, Patrick had mentioned, uh, Patrick and Beth had both mentioned earlier, are are really important things that will give, um, you know, agencies, non profit, non government organizations, conservation partners across the landscape, the tools that they need to do important work to conserve biodiversity. So I got one more minute left, but we got a question from James in Hamden that asks if it helps birds if we don't mow our lawns. Do you have an answer for that, right? Absolutely. I think that by and large, not mowing, not mowing is a, is a great thing. Lawns are, uh, generally speaking, kind of unhealthy monocultures. Um, when you let things grow, you get um, you get seeds, you get uh, you know flowers, you get uh, things like that uh, insects can use. And, and one thing birds do is they eat insects. Um, so uh, anything that you can kind of do to promote the uh, the the, the um, um, uh, re- native wildlife, native plants, all of those things are wonderful for birds. Well, thanks, James, for that question. And thanks, Brian, for answering that. That was Brian Hess, Wildlife Division Biologist with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, and Patrick Cummins, Executive Director of the Connecticut Audubon Society. Thank you both for being here with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm Thank Pat- you. Oh. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.